Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this podcast, a recording from Melancholia, a two-day intensive multidisciplinary seminar devoted to exploring clinical, theoretical and artistic approaches to the topic of melancholia. The event took place in the National Museum of Ireland, Decorative Arts and History, on Friday 7th and Saturday 8th of November 2014. The event was organised and funded by the UCD Humanities Institute and co-sponsored by the Irish Institute of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, the Irish Forum for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, the Association for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy in Ireland and the Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities at University College Dublin. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features Dr. Caroline Bainbridge, lecturer in media studies at the University of Roehampton. Dr. Bainbridge was introduced by Dr. Anne Hall, lecturer in English and director of the Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities at University College Dublin. Um, so first, our first speaker is uh, Professor, or sorry, Dr. Carolyn Bainbridge. She is a reader in visual culture at the University of Roehampton. She's director of the Arts and Humanities Research Council Research Network on Media and the Inner World, which focuses on the development of uh, a psychocultural approach to media, popular culture and psychoanalysis. Um, Caroline also edits the journal Free Associations, Psychoanalysis and Culture, Media Groups, Politics. And she's also the author of The Cinema of Lars von Trier, Authenticity and Artifice, and of Feminine Cinematics, Luce Irigaray, Women and Film. Uh, Caroline has written widely on matters of gender, psychoanalysis, and questions of representation. And she's a series editor of the Psychoanalysis and Popular Culture list, uh, published by Karnak Books. She's also um, recently edited uh, Television and Psychoanalysis, alongside a special issue of Psychoanalysis, Culture and Society. Society on the theme of psychoanalysis and popular culture. And her latest edited anthology, Media and the Inner World, Psychocultural Approaches to Media, Culture and Emotion, is forthcoming soon. It's just out. Okay, that's great. Okay, so thank you very much for, for coming to speak with us today. Thank you. Okay. I'd first of all like to start by thanking uh, the organisers for this invitation to what's um, proving to be already an extremely rich and rewarding experience. Uh, a little bit like this film, I hope. Although I want to start with uh, my own response to the film, which is far from simple, and I'm wondering, actually, if I have the capacity to speak about it at all. And so I'm going to start from my own position of counter-transference, if you like, to my first viewing of the film, which was on its opening weekend of release in London in September 2011, when I was so overwhelmed by the content and material and experience of the film that I've not been able to speak about it at all until today. (laughs) So please bear with me. My counter-transference, I suppose, initially was one of profound bleakness and a very overwhelming sense of the impossibility of speaking something that was so unspeakably uh, envisaged in Von Trier's work. Um, It's as though that unspeakable thing had taken place inside me And yet, I was simultaneously overwhelmed by a very plenitudinous sense of the film's astonishing beauty. But a bit like Griselda Pollock in the reading that we were asked to prepare for this meeting, 
I hesitate to name that experience as sublime. It was something else. It seemed very, its texture seemed to be very, very psycho, psychological to me. And I suppose this has prompted my musings in response to this invitation on how to make sense of the film. Partly, um, it's by now, I suppose, second nature to me to use psychoanalysis as a way of thinking about film. But um, I, in preparing this talk, I felt absolutely, remarkably stuck as though I have nothing to say, as though I don't understand the first thing about psychoanalysis, as though I don't understand anything about gender or cinema or Lars von Trier. And so, in a way, I'm in that space of self-reproach and an undermining of my, my selfhood in response to this film. And it, 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 was the, it, it was the process of feeling stuck, I suppose, that led me to be caught up in a kind of degree of anxiety about, you know, how am I going to prepare for this talk in Dublin, um, to the point that it was only relatively few days ago that I realised what was happening to me, that I realised that I was in this stuck position and that this was indeed something about the quality of melancholia. So I want to mobilise that experience, I suppose, to start um, to offer a few starting points for thinking about this film and for discussing it with reference to various psychoanalytic uh, theoretical frameworks. And so I want to invite you to take an excursion with me through some aspects of object relations psychoanalysis that have helped me to get here today, trying to say what I think I might want to say about my experience with this film and the challenge offered to us by von Trier alongside his invitation to enter into, in, into it. So I wanted to start, first of all, by just kind of sharing with you von Trier's observation. I'll just put this down so that you can see it. Von Trier, in an interview, has said, you know, commented that your therapist would say depression is not the end of the world, but yes, it is. And I think this is absolutely crucial to making meaning of the film, and certainly for me, on third viewing today... Um, this has helped me to understand the role of Claire in the film quite differently. And I noticed that there are various repetitions and echoes throughout the film. For example, Claire remarking to um, Justine that sometimes she really hates her. At the end, first of all, at the end of part one, where um, she is uh, admonishing Justine for spoiling her wedding as though it's the end of the world. But this is a kind of non-melancholics admonishment of a sister. By the end of the second part of the film, when she repeats her hatred, sometimes I hate you, she has entered into an understanding, I think, an externalised version of what melancholia might actually feel like. The psychological kind of uh, dimension of what melancholia might feel like, that the end of the world is indeed upon us, is something that the film brings to life in Claire in ways that I've found very moving today. But certainly the images that I was left with and have carried around for many a long year with me now are certainly these images uh, from the end of the film in which we are in an apocalyptic moment and left, of course, with Von Trier's favourite, the cut-to-black screen with the soundtrack of Annihilation overlaid. So first of all, I want to turn to the work of Melanie Klein and I want to think about um, what the filmic narrative of melancholia demands of us if we wish to make a Kleinian reading. And, of course, the first and most obvious thing to talk about is splitting and the way in which the film adopts a kind of split to um, the singular female character that we're so used to in Von Trier's films. Here we have two sisters, Justine and Claire. 
But we also have, uh, and, and you know, the big close-ups are pretty important in Von Trier's work. The excess is very important, and I will come back to that a bit later. But we also have a number of bad objects in the shape of Gabby, played by Charlotte Rampling, and uh, Dexter, interestingly named, if any of you have been watching the TV show, uh, played by John Hurt. And, of course, Stellan Skarsgård, forgive my terrible Danish pronunciation, playing Jack, all of whom are not only appalling real objects in the externally related world, but one can only imagine the devastating kind of scene of the internal world, the offspring of uh, Gabby and Dexter in particular, but born out in the kind of uh, employment scenario uh, chosen by Justine in her work with the very bullying Jack. We also have various examples of persecutory anxiety seen not least in in, uh, Claire's endless searching on the internet and the idea that we are somehow in a dance of death. Um, The purchasing and subsequent dealing of the uh, pills uh, for the purposes of suicide. And, of course, uh, the betrayal um, by John. There are various mechanisms of projection and interjection that we might point to using a Kleinian framework. The planet that gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that my computer was actually refusing to zoom in any further at this point on this presentation and only at this point. So I find that quite interesting. But the planet that's getting bigger and bigger and more and more threatening, more and more of a projection, one might ask, one might argue. Um, But also the extraordinary self-exposure of Justine in that kind of almost... Uh, desirous state under the light of the melancholic moon, um, the, the sexualized, highly sexualized experience, her opening up to it, a basking in a self-reflection of this projected image, an attempt to interject it, perhaps. Um, and there again we have the, 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 an image of the moon becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. So there are various ways, then, that we could mobilise Klein, I think, to think about this. And I think it's well documented, and I muttered something about it this morning, that for Klein, there is a slight difference from Freud in conceptualising melancholia, which is around the fact that all losses revive our earlier, earlier experiences of loss and thus require a reworking of the internal world in order for the possibility of recovery to take place. For Melanie Klein, the infantile depressive position is... A state of melancholia in statu nascendi. All losses, both real and fantasied, are rooted in the experience of infantile losses of the mother's breast and all that the breast and milk have come to stand in for in the infant's mind, namely love, goodness and security. All of these are felt by the baby to be lost and lost as a result of his own uncontrollable, greedy and destructive impulses. The unconscious fantasy underpinning this experience of loss, then, is that, apparently, of having lost his internal good objects as well, so that he then feels that the internal bad objects predominate and his inner world is in danger of disruption. So splitting, as we see here, is key, and Klein alerts us to this dimension of the melancholic experience, I think. There's a clear reversion to an early infantile paranoid schizoid mechanism that leads to idealisation and denigration. And this characterises the melancholic disposition. And it might also be said to underpin the ambivalence that Freud identifies as central to the melancholic uh, state of mind. 
But the film brings out, I think, many aspects, of, many of these aspects of melancholia, and it brings them to life in accessible and obvious ways, with its depiction of Justine's terrible relationship with her parents, in her profound inability to overcome her melancholic disposition, despite numerous efforts to help her and on her part also to do so. And I find the scene with the meatloaf particularly striking and difficult and unbearable in that regard. Um, it's also worth noting, I think, that the, the shift that takes place in Justine away from the impossibility of tasting the food to the omnipotent, devouring, almost cannibalistic, very primitive relationship that she has to the pot of jam and later to the chocolates. And here I'm reminded of Freud on the... the um, cannibalistic dimensions of melancholia and the, the desire to internalise goodness in order to uh, overcome this terrible relationship uh, with the lost other. So we need also to note the way that Lars von Trier splits his usually singular female in this film, and we need to contextualise with this with the fact that the film um, was made, apparently, and I'm quoting von Trier, as a giant fuck you to his mother okay. <laughs> after her death. Right. And this is, part, this is mainly because um, many of you may know this story already, but on her deathbed, Lars von Trier's mother revealed to him that the man whom he assumed was his father whilst growing up was in fact not his father, and that she had run away and had an affair with an artistic man in order to have an artistic child. And she told him this on, his, on her deathbed and then promptly died. And von Trier has clearly not... Um, survived this, you know, the, the, the degree of uh, commentary on his own experiences of mental ill health, but also his entering into various kind of modalities of psychotherapy and other uh, approaches to, to mental distress, um, a testament to this. In an interview, the interview that I mentioned earlier on, he says that melancholia is intended as a giant fuck you to his mother, that he will never forgive her for what he did, and that he grew up with a kind of relationship where um, when he was fearful of dying overnight in his sleep, she would say, yes, that's a possibility, and leave him to go to sleep. And we see this acted out in the film, don't we, in the way in which firstly John with Leo and then later Justine, who finds a kind of degree of humanity by the end and is able to sustain some kind of related flavour. So I think it's, noticed, it's interesting then that... Um, I think it's also interesting to note that the other modalities of anxiety that are present in the film and to wonder about that, whether or not they can be inflected as melancholic, perhaps that's something we can pick up in the discussion later on. But at the end of the film, it certainly seems as though it's Justine, the melancholic, the one who has the least to lose and so therefore the most to offer in terms of being able to tolerate the end of the world and to make it bearable for others. And in building the magic cave for Leo she manages to forge a sense of relatedness in the face of imminent annihilation. But I wonder, is this a recovery of some sort? And what would it mean to recover in order to die? However, it's not enough, I think, just to think about the narrative in this film. I also want to think about its form, and I would say that wouldn't I as a scholar of film. But the form of the film is quite remarkable. Uh, and this is twofold, I think. First of all, the familiar handheld camera the kind of moving in and out of blurred shots, the kind of unstable experience um, that we know so well from dogma films and von Trier more broadly, but also from documentary, um, as well as the use of lots of jump cuts, etc. And I'm not going to go into some kind of film analytic mode about this, but I just want to highlight it. 
But the thing that I do want to talk about is the so-called overture, the opening, the first opening seven or eight minutes in which we are are told the story that is about to come. So as spectators, we do actually know in advance that this tale, that in this tale, everyone will die in the end. And here I'm thinking about the overture, the precursor to the film, that rephrases the story that's yet to come. I was interested in Russell Griggs' paper, um, the citation of Goethe's observation that we die twice, first when we die, and then when those who knew and loved us die. There's something else going on here that also made me think about the overture. And as spectators, of course, we do not literally die in the auditorium, although it does feel a bit like that for me, but we do take up our identificatory and or witnessing perspectives on scenes of total earthly annihilation. This is apparently impossible, an, an apparently impossible position in, if the logic of this narrative is to be followed through. So what we witness is a fiction that entails the total destruction of all life, and yet, paradoxically, we survive it and we live to tell the tale, although, in, as in my case, we might not feel able to speak about its impact. <coughs> this is surely a very melancholic paradox. The overture, I think, has an important function for us as viewers of this film, and it serves, if I follow uh, an argument made in a completely different context by Griselda Pollock, it's as though we are witnessing the index of a lost moment before death, in which the anguish of loss is not in the image itself, but in the practice of its restaged encounter, where to look is to feel. And I, in Pollock's work on, on Vermeer, she's talking about the restaging of an encounter, but here it's almost like a pre-staging of the encounter to come. We're alerted, we're warned, we are prepared by Von Trier about what to expect emotionally, but is that enough? So for me, the cinematic beginning plays an important part in shaping our relationship to the film as an object, and here I do mean as a psychological object, allowing us to envision our relationship to what we see on screen in ways that circumvent the kind of narcissistic over-identification with the image that's quite often theorised in perspectives on spectatorship derived from psychoanalytic accounts of desire. As Serge Tisserand has suggested, fiction sets in play a continuous back-and-forth movement between the internalisation of certain of the hero's traits and the projection of certain aspects of oneself onto the hero. The cultural object, then, invites relatedness, allowing the viewer actively and yet also unconsciously to engage with it. As we know from Winnicott... Our encounters with culture provide opportunities to revisit uh, transitional phenomena and to experience anew um, the creative bridging between internal and external worlds following on from the holding experience with the mother and our eventual separation from her. Yet it's important to distinguish the mode of engagement with the object in order to comprehend its psychological function. Winnicott reminds us that in object relating, the subject allows certain alterations in the self to take place. The object has become meaningful. In object usage, on the other hand, because of the survival of the object, the subject may now have started to live a life in the world of objects, and so the subject stands to gain immeasurably. I just, as an aside here, I got distracted and included this image, which is the image of the end of the world and the way in which it really resembles the archetypal maternal breast. Um, so that kind of comes to mind in relation to the object. But I think, as we know from Winnicott, 
Transitional objects are both created and found and provide a means of negotiating inner and outer worlds of experience and foster this fantasy of maternal holding with the mother. Um, But it's the usage that I think is interesting in terms of conceptualising what we do with encounters with art. Because, um, Because the object is capable of always being destroyed, it is felt by the subject to be more real. The object in this formulation becomes something that we seek to destroy in order better to be able to tolerate it, so as to be able to use it constructively as a means of shoring up our fractured senses of identity. The overture in Melancholia, then, arguably allows us to perceive of the film as a reliable psychological object, one that can survive our efforts to destroy it, and which therefore extends an invitation to the viewer to take it in for later psychological engagement, if it can be digested. The film not only tells us that it will show us the end of the world before showing it to us. Instead, it also offers us the opportunity to experience a fantasy of annihilation, as if it were our own, through its invitation to identify with the central characters and their experience. However, it also sets out to forewarn us that this will come at a cost, but that the cost will eventually become bearable if we're able to take in the object and to find a way of beginning to speak to its experience, as I'm struggling to do here today. A Winnicottian approach to this dynamic, then, allows me to sustain a more hopeful and creative relationship to the experience of watching Melancholia. I can use it to try to forge an understanding of von Trier's own well-documented expressions, um, experiences of depression and mental ill health, and potentially, therefore, make creative use of it um, to articulate my own encounters with melancholic states of mind. However, we can't think really about Winnicott without understanding that there's an inverse uh, scenario in the object relations uh, framework of thinking. And um, Thomas Ogden, in his work on the, um, the points of overlap and departure between Winnicott and Bion, is quite helpful here, and I want to turn in that direction for a moment. And this is partly because in my recent work on von Trier, I've been thinking about whether or not his films offer an encounter offer an opportunity for an encounter that we might describe for want of better language as potentially therapeutic. Now, I know I'm not suggesting that going to the cinema allows us to to have an experience akin to that of therapy, but there is something that goes beyond the cathartic in viewing his work, I think. And so I'm interested in kind of thinking about what's at play there. And in in some of my recent work on Antichrist, I've written about um, the importance of projection and projective identification in, in that film and the way it was perceived and um, received by critics uh, in the UK uh, as a means of understanding von Trier's own psychological projection of violent mental experience, getting it out there in order for it to be projectively identified so that his experience can be witnessed by the spectator. And I've argued that um, here we need beyond to make sense of what happens to us as spectators in terms of the way in which we are called upon to act as containers, if you like, to receive the contained ideas coming from the projective identification in order to impose upon them a logic that allows thinking to take place. And so cinema itself becomes a form of Bionian container. Um, uh, and for Bion, of course, the idea of the container contained addresses not what we think, but the way we think, that is how we process lived experience and what occurs psychically when we're unable to do psychological work with that experience. Thomas Ogden, though, insists that projective identification is not only a fantasy, but is also a manipulation of one person by another, and thus an interpersonal interaction. 
And this prompted me to start thinking about Bion's work on dreaming um, and the way in which, uh, in Bion's definition of dreaming, unconscious thoughts are generated in response to lived emotional experience. And these then provide the impetus for doing unconscious psychological work. And I thought, that feels like what's going on for me in relation to watching Melancholia. So since publishing the work on Antichrist and since revisiting the film in preparation for today, I've begun to think about this idea and to uh, think about the possibilities of turning to, if you like, a kind of Bionian framework for thinking about spectatorship in um, the context of film studies. It's well known, I think, that... um, early cine psychoanalysis, as it's called, uh, work on the film apparatus and theories of spectatorship, drew an analogy between the dream and the screen of cinema. And that was commonplace in the work of writers such as Jean-Louis Baudry, Christian Metz, and so on. But here, the notion of the screen as dream screen was figured in usually a Lacanian or a Freudian manner. And I wonder what it would mean to conceptualise notions of the gaze, cinematic identification and so on, in terms of an object relations uh, perspective more generally, and through Bion's work in particular. I think I'd like to argue that Bion's preoccupation with thinking gives us new ways to conceptualise the complexity of a cinematic experience, such as viewing this film, but it also highlights important dimensions of artistic practice and viewership. In the context of melancholia, I think it goes further. It allows us to read through the palimpsest of imagery, music, narrative, character and film form to articulate unspeakable aspects of human experience in ways that facilitate a representation of profound psychological distress. We're both invited into the film with its lure of identification and yet simultaneously reminded to hold our distance. The uh, dream screen metaphor then is recast here so that it's not so much a discourse on fantasy and desire as one on the pursuit of experience in the name of psychological work or value. The ambivalence of this spectatorial position becomes complicated and very difficult to keep in mind, as my own experience of the film has made me realise. Arguably, it positions us as melancholic through and through, leaving us with a profound sense of loss at the end of the film and yet not knowing what it is that has been lost. We're positioned, to quote Bion again, as viewers with a binocular vision. And and I think the overture alerts us to that fact. It's as though in order to take up the invitation inherent in the projective identification offered by von Trier as filmmaker, we have to struggle to become containers in order to make sense of his work. We have to internalise the experience underpinning the film as if it were our own with all the implications that this demand carries in terms of taking in a loss that does not belong to us but which, if I follow Klein again, serves to remind us of all our own previous experiences of loss. In taking up this invitation, then, we appear to take up a particularly melancholic gaze, one that might entail the self-denigration and self-silencing that's taken place seemingly in my own response to the film and in my inability to speak of it coherently until today. Or it might entail an ambivalent response in which Lars von Trier is dismissed as a clown playing with ideas of emotion and psychological experience and this response was offered to me by a colleague the day before flying to Dublin. <laughs> so in conclusion then, what might all of this mean or is there any possibility of meaning in a melancholic experience? I think I'd like to leave the final words on this to von Trier himself by playing you an excerpt from a radio interview in which he articulates the importance of melancholia in the field of human experience. And I've accompanied this clip 
with an image um, of the engraving by Albrecht Dürer of Melancholia I, um, partly because, neatly, it is 500 years old this year. Mm-hmm. But watching this film, it, I found it impossible not to think of, of the planet Melancholia as some kind of concrete version of depression, of a state mm-hmm. of mind, possibly mm-hmm. your own yeah. state of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's as, as banal as that, yes. I think melancholia is such an important ingredient in everything that's around us. And it is like, I know it's banal also, but it is like salt when you make food. You know, if there's no salt in the food, it just doesn't... It brings out the taste, and melancholia is in everything, in music, in painting, and if it's not there, it's just not worth using time on. So, so of course, melancholia, and I think it is in, in many people, and it's, it's, it is this strange longing, and it is the wolf, you know, crying at the moon or whatever, and it is beauty, and it's scary and it's cold and it's warm and it's it's uh, no I'm, I, I'm melancholia I think is is a very human thing but when it goes further than just being melancholia and and being uh, goes to depression or anxiety or, or whatever mental disease then it's of course not good but it's a very important part of being human I think it's also worth noting just in this image of doers that um, the melancholic is female and von Trier throughout his work has has completely referenced the uh, experiences of his female protagonists as mirrors to his own experiences going so far as to claim that he feels himself to be feminine to a large degree Um, the second observation that I want to make um, that underpinned my inclusion of this image here is its roots in the basis of um, in informing and influencing the development of Romanticism, which is another very important movement for Lars von Trier and one that is um, revisited here in this narrative, but also one, of course, that was appropriated in Germany by the Nazi regime. And I think this gives us interesting context for the outrageous remarks made by von Trier at Cannes Film Festival mm-hmm. about feeling himself to be a Nazi to some extent. It gives us an interesting kind of perspective, I think something that was picked up a little bit this morning about the ways in which we might take responsibility. I think um, Eve was asking about the projections into the other and how we can look away or disavow them. But I want to ask the question of what if we actually took up the responsibility for the projective identifications that we make? Um, Ineas Sodre has (coughs) suggested that... um, in many ways, massive projective identification can be seen as a, as a manic mode of melancholic narcissistic identification. And I think that gives us an interesting way in which to open up debates about um, responsibility, disavowal, um, and uh, what's speakable, unspeakable, representable, and so on. Thank you.